0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again.
1: And welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today. And we're going to continue discussions related to helping you in the community, looking at the health and safety of all Texans. We're delighted today that we have a geriatric medicine specialist, Dr. Jennifer Atmore. She's at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital located in Allen and also with the Texas Health Physicians Group. Dr. Atmore, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: You know, when we think in terms of geriatrics, senior citizens, as we look to the future, in your estimation, approximately how many senior citizens will call Texas home, say, by 2050, and how do you think that's going to change?
2: Well, it's estimated that about about 20% of Texans will be over the age of 65 in 2050, and that is very much in keeping with the trends that we've seen over the past several years with a a big boom in the over 65 population. I can tell you that in my practice, I have a specialization in geriatrics and I'm also an internist. So I previously had a practice that was approximately 60% under 65, 40% over 65. But in the last several years, I'm in an area where there's a tremendous amount of growth and the biggest well, I've had a huge amount of growth in that population. So now my practice is heavily weighted to the over 65 group.
1: What are some of the key facts related to seniors and when they fall?
2: Well, it is a major issue in geriatrics. Um, one of the things that makes geriatrics special is, aside from looking at all the the baseline medical issues that everybody, you know, potentially can struggle with through their adult life, as you enter the geriatric age groups, there's sort of specialized syndromes that become more, more specific to that age group, and one of those is falls, and there's a lot of factors that come into that, but some, some key facts are that millions of people fall annually in that age group over 65. Falls are one of the, the single largest causes of death and injury in elderly people, Not so much as a result of the fall itself immediately, but most often as a consequence of sequelae from the fall, of complications or other limitations that are born from the fall. But about one in four people over the age of 65 fall per year, and that's up from about one in three back in 2010. And once you do have a fall, your risk of a second fall doubles. So it's something that You know, once those factors are in place that have led the person to fall, they're more inclined to have additional falls. Of the people that fall, about one in five will have an injury. Three million are often treated in the ER, and about 800,000 of those treated in the ER are hospitalized with either the big two factors are hip fracture or head injury. About 300,000 people are hospitalized for a hip fracture. And then the most common cause of traumatic ba- brain injury in people over 65 is from a fall. So this is pretty substantial information in regard to why it's important to look at this issue and try to prevent it as much as we can.
1: In your opinion, what are some of the common factors or some of the conditions that are more likely make you fall?
2: Sure. Um, There's several issues that make people more inclined to fall. Very largely, I would kind of think of them in three general categories. One is going to be medical conditions or physical conditions related to aging. The second would be the surrounding environment in which the person lives. And the third being medications. But just to kind of start with the uh, medical conditions within that subheading, one element is lower extremity weakness. So, as people age, we lose muscle mass. Even if you're somebody who exercises and tries to maintain that, you still have a propensity to lose a little bit of muscle mass over time. In concert with that, you can also have weakness of the lower extremities, which is a big factor that can contribute to falls. So, if people find that they are less tolerant of activity they sometimes tend to do less activity and then that sort of feeds in to a cycle whereby they become more and more weakened so that's a major factor that also kind of correlates with gait disorders and balance disorders because of changes in the nervous system that gives feedback to the brain about where somebody is in space or their balance that can in turn affect their ability to walk safely Um, We have what are called proprioceptors in our extremities that help us to get a feedback to our brain of where that limb is in space, and those systems just don't work quite as well with age, so they also impair the ability to walk safely, or they can impair the ability to walk safely and have good balance. So those are some of the physical elements of aging, whether or not you're healthy or have other medical conditions. These are age-related changes that tend to be a major factor in contributing to falls. Medical problems like arthritis, uh, joint issues, vision changes, neuropathy, which is a loss of sensation in the feet, and it can also be painful. That can impact how well people balance and walk. And so those factors can feed into the person's ability to safely ambulate. And believe it or not, vitamin D deficiency has a relationship between Uh, low vitamin D levels seem to be related to increased chance of falling. So vitamin D has come out recently with COVID as being a potential risk factor. And we also found that with falls, low vitamin D can be a risk factor. So trying to supplement vitamin D to maximize that level is a good idea. And then uh, the physical elements that the person lives within the home, um, does their home have steps that they can trip on? Are there cords on the floor they can fall on is the furniture placement such that they're less inclined to bump into something, um, throw rugs on the floor, a big risk, lighting in the home, actually too much lighting can be a problem, too little lighting can be a problem, and the shoe type that the patient is wearing, thick-soled kind of rubbery shoes are not actually very safe for older people because they have more tendency to, to stick or to help per- make the person trip. You tend to want a thinner-soled shoe Uh, not too slick, but something that is going to be a little less likely to catch. And then um, the third major factor is medications, and that's something I really spend a lot of time with my patients on when they come in, and they they usually don't like me for it because the medications that tend to be a major risk toward contributing to falls are things like sleeping medications or benzodiazepines, which are medicines that um, traditionally were the mainstay of how we treated anxiety and depression, People used to call them tranquilizers or mother's little helper. These medications are sedatives. They're sort of like having a glass of wine, and they can vastly decrease the patient's level of alertness and balance, so that greatly increases the patient's risk of false. And there are also medicines that the patient's need for other medical conditions, for example, blood pressure medications. um, While necessary, if they're slightly over- dosed, the person's blood pressure can fall and that can, you know, increase their chance of a fall because it can create dizziness and lightheadedness.
3: Dr. Jennifer Atmore here with us on the human side of healthcare. She's a geriatric medicine specialist at Texas Health Presbyterian Allen. Have you ever known anyone who fell, broke a hip and that started a long slow decline? We're going to unpack that and more when we come back on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us.
0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the Radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again.
3: We're back with Dr. Jennifer Atmore. She's Geriatric Medicine Specialist at Texas Health Presbyterian Allen. And before we dive deeper and talk about why the domino seems to trip when people fall and break their hips, let's first unpack some myths around falling and our elderly.
2: Yes, so absolutely. And I think I'll start with a kind of a positive, a myth that has a positive response. And that is that there is sometimes the idea that if you're going to age, you're going to fall apart and you're going to have health problems and you're going to, you know, likewise be more inclined to fall but that's actually not necessarily true in geriatrics there's a concept of physiologic age physiologic age is different from chronologic age because um, it's looking at how is this individual functioning by themselves so not all 70 year olds are in the same shape you know and I think we all can think about people we know who 30 year olds who act like they're 90 and I've known 90 year olds who act like they're 20 So you you don't 100% have to fall apart and have bad things happen to you just because of aging. If a person is taking good care of themselves, is maintaining activity, is engaging socially, they can absolutely do very well. So with proper care, you can live a healthy and fall-free life. So that's one myth is that you don't have to fall just because you're getting older. A second myth is that men are more likely to fall than women based on the idea that men are more physically apt to take risks or be more physically aggressive than women, but in fact, women are the most likely to fall, and the injuries they suffer tend to be more serious, more detrimental. Now, having said that, our women do tend to, you know, we tend to see women, and I can't give you the exact number on this, but we tend to see women live a little longer, I think, sometimes than their male, male counterparts, so they may make up a slightly greater proportion of that Group of that over sixty-five group, but I think because of the lesser muscle mass of women, you know, the, the issues of weakness and balance sort of become a little bit more of an issue. So I think that's another factor that may kind of predispose women. But it, in fact, it is more of a risk for women than men. Another myth is that there's no approach to help avoid falls. There is actually in the geriatric community and training centers, I attended uh, UT Southwestern for my fellowship training. Um, There's definitely approach to trying to prevent falls. Um, The CDC has lists of fall prevention strategies and there are different subgroups that make a lot of um, effort to educate people about things to be looking for themselves or for their family member if it's maybe an adult child that's concerned about their parent. So we definitely have strategies that try to minimize the chance of falling. So it's not something where we we are helpless. Um, Another myth is that if you fall, that's the end of your independence. It's certainly a risk to lose independence after a fall. But if you can identify a reversible cause for the fall and try to impact that and improve that, patients definitely have the potential to rehabilitate, to improve, and to actually come back stronger and um, hopefully not have further falls. So there is always an option there. And the last myth I would say is that falls only happen because of a decline in health. Um, That's not true. We definitely see very healthy people fall for various reasons, um, and some of those being vision impairment, which is, again, vision is most, you know, is very frequently affected with age, so that can be a common factor people are dealing with as they age.
1: You know, you bring up some very interesting points, and you also mentioned frequently seniors, when they fall, may break a hip, and that makes them immobile, and that becomes problematic for other medical conditions, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. One of the main reasons there's a medical condition osteoporosis that we attempt to try and treat in geriatrics, but also before geriatrics, Um, you know, when women hit the age of 50, it's recommended to start screening for bone density. And we do it predominantly in women, but men also can be susceptible to osteoporosis, which is the loss of bone density. But one of the reasons there's so much focus on that earlier in life, even before someone's 65, is because we know that if you have a hip fracture, your chance of complications and death goes way up if you have to be hospitalized. And generally what happens there is, again, it's not the fracture that causes the death of the person or the complications or the immobility. It's the sequelae, the after events. If a person's in the hospital for fracture, being in the hospital places them at greater risk of other complications like uh, pressure, ulcers or wounds, clots in the leg, infections in the lung decreased physical conditioning which then it can impact their physical abilities later and then if they're not able to rehab well they may have limitations in how well they can ambulate or walk afterwards and they may be dependent on medical equipment to help assist them or in some cases if people are uh, fearful of falling again and they may not want to ambulate or they may choose to become wheelchair dependent and focus or, or become reliant on using a wheelchair instead of getting back up and regaining their strength and rebuilding their balance and stability.
3: You know, I don't know the number of people who fracture a hip and then they don't survive for the next 18, 24 months. It seems like it's high to me, but what is it about the hip that correlates to that decline?
2: It's it's a little under 50 percent of people uh, hospitalized with I think that the number varies, honestly, between the sources that you look at. But uh, somewhere between 30 and 50% of people after a a hip fracture do not survive the fracture because of all those complications that I discussed previously. But absolutely, there is a spiraling effect that can occur. There's actually a physiologic downward spiral called sarcopenia, whereby a person has, they may have an injury or uh, an event that causes them to stop being as active and then that in turn doesn't allow them to be as active if you've ever exercised regularly and you develop this endurance that you can go out and you can walk or run a certain amount of distance in a certain time period and feel good but then if you stop when you go back to do that you can't do it so what happens is these people will very very quickly lose their muscle strength and endurance while hospitalized. And then if they don't get back into rebuilding that and working on that and, and trying to build up their endurance, they'll continue to decline. And then they're less able to do. So thus they lose more strength and, and uh, endurance. And it's this downward spiral and it can, it causes frailty and a failure to thrive. And it's, it's a major, uh, a major danger point for older people. Um, And there's definitely no pill for this. It's something where you really have to get them up and going and, then rehab them and work them. But yes, emotionally, the fear of falling after fall is a huge, huge concern, and it's a very difficult thing to overcome. Seniors will often not hydrate well because they don't want to have to get up and go to the bathroom, especially after they've had a fall if they're worried about that, so then we deal with other issues like dehydration issues. The issue of depression is extremely dangerous in older people, and after these kinds of events, that's much more likely to occur. Anxiety is more likely to occur, and then they become immobilized, not just physically, but emotionally.
3: Where are some places at home that we could shore up and make safer?
2: So any kind of steps and stairs are going to be an issue. And I would say one area that I would think a lot about is entry into the house, because You know, you're coming in from the concrete, which may or may not be even. So if you have that, you want to uh, illuminate it well. You might even put little markers. I've seen sometimes where people will paint yellow to kind of make it more distinguishable. But if there's an option to avoid that, if there's putting in ramps, grab bars, things like that uh, can be very helpful. One of the biggest areas where we see problems is in the bathroom. Uh, a, a huge majority of um, injuries occur in the bathroom. So grab bars, raise toilet seats. A lot of people will pull out their bathtubs and get walk-in showers that are really easy to get in and out of. You want to have something on the bottom to kind of prevent slickness on the shower bottom. There are companies I know that make step-in bathtubs and different things like that, but these can be really helpful things. And then I just think about things like, you know, a lot of stuff, a lot of clutter in the home is always a problem. I used to do house calls and boy, that's really enlightening when you actually see how people live and you can really, really pinpoint quickly, hey, if we can move this and change this, we could really make this a safer place for you. So just making sure, you know, stacks of papers on the floor or books or um, lots of stuff on the floor really needs to be picked up. And this is where you probably might need another family member or friend or someone to come in as an objective set of eyes and just sort of scan the area and look. But that's a big issue. Um, I I think cords, I didn't see that as much in home visits, but definitely... If you've got cords running across the floor to plug in electronics or this or that, or telephone, uh, telephone cords probably aren't an issue so much anymore, but back in the day, you know, that would have been an issue. But those can be easily tripped on. And then actually pets, I have a lot of people who've tripped on their animals, so you, you kind of have to be careful there. And the other big thing that I've had about three people have major, major injuries from is the uh, dishwasher door when they leave it down to load. You kind of have to be careful about things like that. But um, lighting is another one. Now they make these really bright, bright, illuminating uh, lights that can be really good, kind of getting away from that yellow, dimmer light. But again, overly lighting can kind of create glares and things. So you just want to be a little careful there.
3: Some fantastic tips. Dr. Jennifer Atmore from Texas Health Presbyterian Allen. Thank you for joining us with that information. We're going to swing back to COVID. Did you know that COVID is now affecting people cognitively and with strokes? We're gonna talk about the stroke risk with COVID-19 next on the human side of healthcare.
0: The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with council president and CEO, Stephen Love and co-host, Thomas Miller.
1: Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. You know, we've done a lot of programs related to COVID-19, but one thing we really haven't focused on, if you've had a stroke or you're a potential stroke patient, you need to know about some of the impacts of COVID-19 and what it can do to you. We are so delighted that we've got with us today Dr. Bartley Mitchell, who's a neurosurgeon at Methodist Health System. Dr. Mitchell, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I'm sure some of our listeners, or maybe they've got parents or friends that would like to know, does COVID-19 increase the risk of a stroke? This is such a good topic and I'm, I'm so pleased that you are talking about it on your show
4: today to answer your question. Quite simply, yes, uh, we've found that there is as far as we know, a relationship between being positive for COVID-19 and having an increased risk of stroke. In fact, in one study, they showed that there was approximately seven times higher likelihood of having a stroke, if you are diagnosed with COVID. And so that is, that is enormous. And the real question is what does that translate into as, as far as the thousands of people who are being diagnosed with COVID these days, if you consider that between one and 6% of people who have COVID will suffer a stroke, that then translates into a very large number of people who have strokes as a result of
1: this disease. So what advice do you have for people that have previously had strokes?
4: I think it means that, that we need to continue being vigilant about the symptoms of stroke. And and more importantly, to come to the hospital, if you or your, your loved one, your family member is, if you feel that they're having a stroke, if they have symptoms such as weakness on one side of their body, if they're having some speech difficulty, uh, if their face is drooping, then in those cases it's important it is critical to bring them to the hospital so that they can be checked out and if necessary, so that we can intervene. The important part about this is that our technology that we have today to treat strokes is phenomenal. And the things that we can do to help somebody are just astounding. And the critical part about this is that we have to see the people, the patients as soon as possible. What we've been seeing out in the public recently is that due to fear of, of COVID and getting, being exposed to COVID by coming to the hospital, many people with stroke symptoms are not coming to the hospital. And that's a problem because then by the time they do come to the hospital, we can't do anything about it. But if they come immediately, we have so many great technologies that we can use these days that have really been developed in the last five years alone that have turned people's stroke symptoms around. And I think that's really the key message here. If you have the symptoms, please, please
1: come into the ER. You know, you bring up such a valid point. Uh, Many people, especially in April, May, and June, were fearful of calling 911. They didn't want to come to the hospital. And not only strokes, but cardiovascular, other issues, people were having heart attacks and not coming. So let me pivot just a little bit. The importance of getting there as soon as possible at the on-site of these symptoms. Are there medications or treatments that you can do to help reverse a stroke? That's right. In the very early stages of a stroke, we can give
4: medications that will actually break apart a blood clot that's causing the stroke that's blocking a blood vessel going to the brain. And what that does is it opens the blood vessel back up, but we can only do that within the first four and a half hours for most patients if they're eligible for that. And uh, honestly, most patients are eligible for that when they come in in a short amount of time. Now out to 24 hours, if it's a a big vessel that has been uh, blocked up, then we have other interventional methods that we can use and that's really where the the advancements in the technology has taken place over the past 5 years where we can really be effective in turning people's uh, symptoms of a stroke around and get them to the point where they can actually leave in a functional state
1: if you or a family member are having symptoms of a stroke should you immediately get in a vehicle and go to the emergency room or call 911
4: I would call 911 and that's for several reasons. I think the EMT and paramedic uh, personnel can accurately assess the patient. They can actually perform some interventions and they can get the patient to the most appropriate stroke center to the level that's appropriate to that person as fast as possible. And that really is, is critical is to get your, your loved one, your family member to the hospital as quickly as possible. Especially if you're talking about somebody having a major stroke, there are different levels of of treatment for strokes in the city, in every city in the United States. And the top level is being a comprehensive stroke center, which that's what we do here at Methodist Dallas. And that means that we can provide all of the major treatments that are available for people who are having a stroke.
1: Well, as you indicated, strokes are very serious at any time, but especially as we deal with COVID-19. Are there ways people can reduce their risk of stroke related to COVID-19, blood thinners, etc.?
4: I do. When a patient comes in with a stroke and they have COVID-19, in general now our best literature suggests that we should be giving these patients anticoagulation medication. In other words, we should be giving them blood thinning medication to try to prevent additional strokes. Now if it's if it's someone who wants to prevent having a stroke and they may be exposed to COVID-19, the best ways of doing that are still the the ways that we've been recommending in the past in that if you have high blood pressure, that needs to be controlled. Take your medication. If you are overweight, then we recommend that, you know, you do try to get some sort of exercise or fitness program. Uh, if you have diabetes, that's another risk factor that needs to be well controlled. So are the, for the primary things that we can do to help people to prevent stroke are the major things that people have control of over themselves. So if you're a smoker, stop smoking. If you have diabetes, get the diabetes under control. High blood pressure,
1: keep that under control. Those are major ways of preventing a stroke. You know, when we think in terms of strokes, and I know this isn't always true, but we seem to categorize elderly people, people age 65 and older are more more prone to strokes. But as I've talked to some of the physicians here in North Texas They're seeing more and more young people that are having strokes as a result of COVID-19. Is there a medical explanation for that? As far as the actual medical explanation, that's still being analyzed
4: in a forward-looking way. But you're absolutely right. If you consider that the average age of somebody who has a stroke before COVID-19 hit, the average age of a stroke patient was 74 the average age of the stroke patients in in people who have COVID is 59. That's a huge, that's a 15 year difference in the age of these patients. We're now seeing patients who are below 50 years old, uh, younger than 50, they have no risk factors of having a stroke and yet they present with a stroke. And we think it's because they have COVID-19. Whenever someone presents like that, sometimes the initial presenting symptom of having COVID is presenting with a stroke. And when we see this happening to younger and younger patients, I've personally had one who was 35 years old, having a major stroke and had no risk factors at all. And that is a warning sign that says, look, COVID is affecting a lot of different body systems and it can cause some some bad problems, whether it causes the heart to beat in an irregular way or if it causes the blood to clot more so than it should normally or even if it causes inflammation on the inside of the blood vessels. They've actually found these viral particles lodged in the of lining of blood
1: vessels and inside the brain. You know, you mentioned that people should not be afraid to call 911. They need to come to the hospital. Uh, because hospitals are safe, even though you're having to treat COVID-19 patients. Can you expand a little bit on some of the patient safety measures that you know are being done to help protect people from COVID-19 at the hospital? At the hospital,
4: we have a specialized unit where we house patients who we know have covid and they have a special ventilation system in that portion of the hospital. Now we also have special areas of the hospital where we put patients who are currently under investigation. So they may have COVID, we might not know what their COVID status is right at the moment, but they also get isolated and in the time that these patients are in the the separate areas of the hospital, the staff that sees them is wearing a full gamut of personal protective equipment. So they're wearing gowns, they're wearing masks, wearing eye shields, uh, gloves. There is very strict hand washing and hand sanitization that's going on uh, all throughout these areas. And they're, like I said, they're sectioned off from the normal areas of hospital. Now, unfortunately, this also means that Family members cannot come in to visit the the patients who are under investigation for COVID because we don't want them to spread it to other patients who are in the hospital. Uh, But I think in order to maximize the benefit to our patients and the patients who come in sick, some of these measures are, are
3: necessary. You know, with COVID, we're starting to hear reports of people having all these neurological issues, and we are talking to a neurosurgeon from Methodist Health System, Dr. Bartley Mitchell, MD, PhD. And we're going to continue this conversation when we come back on The Human Side of Healthcare. If you missed any of this, it's on our podcast. Just search all the major podcast players for The Human Side of Healthcare.
0: We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environments. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO, Stephen Love, and co-host, Thomas Miller.
3: Welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Bartley Mitchell. He's an MD, PhD neurosurgeon at Methodist Health System. We're talking about COVID and strokes and neurology, but we're going to take a quick detour because last year, in October, Dr. Mitchell performed an awake brain surgery, and it was streamed on social media. You were actually one of the neurosurgeons that
1: performed the awake brain surgery that was streamed on Facebook Live, and I remember that distinctly. So as you look in your crystal ball, you mentioned a lot of changes in the last five to six years. Do you see more changes related to the awake brain surgery?
4: I absolutely do. I think that it's becoming more common for us to be able to do this and the, the teamwork involved in that is fantastic Uh, because obviously it's not just, it's not just me, it's not just my partners who are doing this. We stand on the shoulders of, of many of the other, other service provider providers here in the hospital. And so, yes, I see that becoming a more common component of, of what we do here at the hospital.
3: Would you walk us through some more on that surgery that you did? That's fascinating.
4: Well, uh, for that surgery, this was a a pretty young patient. She was in her 20s, and she presented initially with some stroke-like symptoms. She was having some difficulty with speaking. And so once we did some scans on her brain, we figured out that she had a, a small vascular malformation in her brain near the speech center of her brain. And so that's, that's really critical. This, this particular patient, she was actually a a speech pathology, uh, or an occupational therapist student. And so that was just critical to her, her line of work. And so we looked at her overall situation and said, look, in order for us to avoid when we take this, this vascular malformation out, we want to avoid the areas of the brain that are intimately involved in forming language and speech. And so, to do that we were planning on keeping her awake while we take this out and we stimulated various areas of the brain around the vascular malformation and so in that way we were able to determine which areas of brain we could go through safely to get to the vascular malformation and take it out without affecting her speech and that was the key part of doing an awake surgery like that is that that way we have a very high degree of certainty as far as the, the patient being able to have a successful outcome and be able to speak after a surgery like that. Because otherwise, when you do a surgery, you may not know that you're going through such an important part of the brain.
3: Have awake brain surgeries been done before?
4: These have been done before. Uh, in this case, I think that was the first time that someone had had streamed the surgery live on Facebook but certainly procedures like this had been done before and I was fortunate to have come through a training program where we did a large number of these. Um, and you know, felt like that, that that's definitely a part of, of what our practice should should entail here at Methodist as well. And really the patient was the, was a real hero in that she was such a trooper, uh, Jenna, uh, recently it's been a year since that surgery and, uh, she's, she's continued to have an, an excellent post operative course.
3: That's awesome. Wow. Let's swing back to COVID. (laughs) What about these patients that you're talking about being in the hospital under observation? What does that mean and what does that look like?
4: Most of them are having symptoms of respiratory infection or respiratory congestion. They may have symptoms of a cold uh, or have body aches. Uh, or just uh, have a headache, or feel some stiffness in the in the uh, in their muscles and joints, and so that's generally what most people present with. Many people actually present with with no symptoms. They've come in for something else, and it turns out that they they have COVID.
3: You know, we all understand COVID as a respiratory virus. Why do you think it's affecting the brain?
4: One of the main theories out there right now is that the virus is some of the main symptoms manifest themselves through the lung. And so we call it a respiratory infection. But the truth is the virus infects almost every part of the body and causes generalized inflammation. And it's that generalized inflammation that not only causes the blood to clot uh, more easily, but by causing inflammation on the insides of the blood vessels and in the tissues themselves that also wreaks havoc on the body. Uh, particularly in the brain, and we think that that may be one of the underlying causes to people having strokes or other, other problems associated with COVID, particularly cardiovascular issues, because it's not only in the brain, but the blood vessels going to the heart can also be inflamed or be the victims of these conditions where people's blood clots too easily.
3: You know, obviously any stroke is serious, but what is the level of severity that you are seeing from these COVID-induced strokes?
4: Most of the ones that I have seen have been serious strokes, but overall, I would say that the the strokes that we have seen from this probably are on a similar, a similar overall degree of seriousness uh, compared to normal strokes. But the issue is that people are having Younger individuals are having strokes who don't, don't have necessarily as many risk factors and larger numbers of people are having strokes as a result of having the virus. And so that's really the, the part that has caused some alarm uh, out in the public uh, because there are some risk factors that we can, that we can make better, you know, such as if you're a smoker or have high blood pressure or have diabetes, all of these risk factors you can control. But getting COVID, you can't necessarily control that.
3: This isn't strokes, but it is neurological. We're hearing of depression and diminished levels of thinking and clarity. What do you suppose is going on there?
4: It's hard to know or to, to determine really the cause behind that because a lot, and, and believe me, I've heard of plenty of people who have had these symptoms as well, especially feeling like they just are not operating on a full tank of gas that there are maybe 80% of where they were before on their energy level or their thought process that their head is still up in the clouds. And that's, that's actually a reasonably common longer term symptom that we're seeing here. I think until we really are able to, to study this more, I don't know if we'll, we'll determine what the cause is behind that or really how prevalent uh, symptoms like that are. But I suspect, based on my personal experience with this and my patients, is that we may see more of that as time goes on.
3: Well, and from your world, we have two very good reasons not to get COVID. We're talking about stroke. We're talking about depression. How has this crafted or changed your own perspective and message that you tell your friends, family, patients about preventing COVID-19?
4: In my opinion, I've always held to the belief that that these public policies of washing your hands and wearing a mask and social distancing, I think they're all very important. And I, I encourage all of my patients, I encourage all of my friends and family to, to stick with this and try to ride this through. I think that a large portion of the population is is going to be exposed to COVID even despite all of these precautions. Uh, but in the past several months, what we have learned on how to treat COVID is just phenomenal because the the death rate has gone down tremendously. We now know how to treat these things early, and we have a good idea of how to prevent stroke in COVID patients from the very beginning by putting them on blood thinners. I think, though, that continuing on with these protective measures for everyone, including me, my friends, my family, I think it's a good thing to do, and that's what I'm going to continue to do.
3: From your perch, how do you see things progressing in the battle against COVID-19?
4: More data is emerging about COVID and about stroke associated with COVID and about other disease states, including depression and lack of energy. The, your questions were very insightful. And, uh, you know, I think we're sort of at the limit of what we know, but we, we find out more and more as time goes by The the overall effort from people around the world is just incredible. And I think it really speaks to the to the overall state of human existence in that you know we can work together to try and figure this thing out.
3: Dr. Bartley Mitchell, thank you for joining us. And we do hope that you will heed the message to do your part to stop the spread. Let's stomp COVID out this holiday season. Don't forget about Dr. Haley and his guinea pigs. The mask works. Have a good, safe week, and we'll see you next week on the human side of healthcare.